I'm developing this idea of the media opportunity structure. So this is building on social movement theorists um, like Sidney Taro, who talked about the political opportunity structure, which is basically just this idea that, well, how do we understand whether social movements are able to be effective? How do, um, what are some factors that can sort of predict that? And what they talk about in, in terms of political opportunity structure is this idea that um, there's a certain set of actors that social movements may have access to or not have access to, which include, you know, does the movement have access to local elites? Is there a div division or tension between elites? And can movement actors exploit that to get some of their, their aims met? And when they think about media and the media opportunity structure, the, it's a concept that's really um, sort of heavily under-theorized and underdeveloped. There is some work uh, in terms of thinking in classic social movement uh, studies uh, theory. So uh, Victor San Pedro talked about the media opportunity structure in the context of uh, s uh, Spanish organizers who were, who were organizing against uh, the draft uh, in the 80s. Um, but he's really just looking at broadcast media. And his main conclusion is that social movements don't really have access to uh, broadcast media, except for in very particular moments, like when their issue is new and when they do a big uh, street mobilization. Um, we have um, uh, Mira Marx-Ferry um, and a group of uh, scholars did a really interesting comparative study called Shaping Abortion Discourse between Germany and the US, which um, really looks at um, the different ways that abortion is framed in the German media and the US media. And they look, they develop some interesting concepts like uh, framing and standing. And they do quantitative studies of how often are movement actors able to insert their voice into media. Um, and then look at, you know, does the frame have an impact on whether the movement is able to become visible in the mass media space? But again, they're really just looking at mass media. And they're looking at it as something that's pretty much static. Um, so they're looking at print and, and broadcast media. Um, there are a couple other scholars who have looked at this too. Um, Gamson um, looked at it a little bit. Um, but again, um, so far social movement scholars have really only looked at the media opportunity structure in terms of uh, broadcast media and as something that is, that is unchanging. And so I think that that really needs to change. And we really need to think about the media opportunity structure as something that's dynamic. And I'll, I'll go into that a little, a little bit more now. So, what is the media opportunity structure for the Los Angeles immigrant rights movement? So first of all, um, we have to focus on the continued importance of radio. So the mobilizations against Sensenbrenner in 2006, um, all of my interviewees um, all said the, you know, the exact same thing. The reason why millions of people turned out in the streets in 2006 is because all of the Spanish language locutores, which is um, broadcast uh, commercial Spanish language uh, broadcast radio hosts who do morning shows in LA that are incredibly popular and they're a mix of you know humor with some news and some music it's kind of like a sort of talk show format um, where they'll have people calling in um, and they're um, just sort of you know sort of cracking jokes mostly um, this is the most popular thing that people listen to on their way to work in the morning and all of the Spanish language locutores in LA um, in the run-up to Sensenbrenner and the mobilizations in the spring of 2006 all got together and said, we need to turn people out onto the streets to shut down this bill because it's so horrible for our communities. And so uh, a number of the most popular, popular locutores who traditionally you know, engage in sort of on-air rivalry, instead they started doing these conference calls where they would all call each other live on the air and instead of making fun of each other, um, they would just 
just for a, mo a solid month before the mobilization wave started in, in March, just telling people that they needed to come out into the street to shut down this Sensenbrenner bill. It was really horrible. It was going to criminalize their communities. It was, you know, they, they needed to turn out and get involved and get engaged and get active. Um, and that was the single most important factor. So radio still plays a really key role in the media opportunity structure for the movement in LA. Of course, at the same time, we do have the growth of social media and access to mobile media, which enables new forms of real-time social movement media practices. Um, these images uh, of, are from, uh, from a, a range of spaces. Uh, this first one is a sticker that was uh, slapped up all around the city, uh, encouraging high school students in LA Unified to walk out of school to participate in the mass mobilizations against Sensenbrenner, but the, the print sticker was also uh, posted widely on MySpace and circulated um, you know, as uh, wall bulletins on MySpace. Uh, the walkout warriors sort of meme got a lot of traction in the run-up to the walkouts in March. Um, you can see here that people also uh, developed new practices, um, or at the time it was new, I think it's pretty standard now, of uh, you know, shifting their profile name and their profile picture to be uh, movement messages. So for a reason um, is in reference to wa uh, walking out for a walk out for a reason, which was a, a very large uh, MySpace group that was popular among um, Latino uh, youth in East LA, especially uh, during this period of time. So people were, you know, changing their profile pictures to support the walkouts and against Sensenbrenner, and uh, you know, changing their names. Um, and they were, of course, you know, creating groups like uh, Noan HR 4437 with a profile picture of Viva La Raza. Um, we have uh, Fuck the HR Dash, um, which the profile picture is a flyer for the Mass March 2006, um, uh, among a, a range of, of other uh, similar groups. So this was really widespread um, during this period of time. So people were developing these new uh, practices based around the social networking sites that they did have access to, largely in their schools and public libraries, not so much at home. Um, but people did use them. Um, and by people, I mean young people especially. So we have the radio and we have the social, uh, social media space. And cell phones also play a role. And I'll come back to the walkouts a little bit later in the presentation. So um, again, I'm encouraging us to think about analyzing the media opportunity structure for any particular movement context. And in this case, we've got a lack of access to uh, Anglo media, um, both print and broadcast. And a lot of the organizers that I talked to, um, you know, they repeated this over and over again. We just can't get coverage you know, in the English language press, but we can get coverage in Spanish language commercial radio, both locally, but actually also nationwide. So Arlene Davila talks about uh, Latinos Inc. Uh, she talks about the creation of Latinos as a mass market in the US, which also goes hand in hand with the creation of um, nationwide networks, Univision, Telemundo. And so both Univision and Telemundo actually also were promoting uh, these protests and talking to people about why they were organizing them and talking about the Sensenbrenner bill. And so um, in a way, the creation of a pan-Latino pan media market while it erases uh, local differences and differences based on country of origin, it does provide a nationwide space for the circulation of movement media messages in a time like this. And that certainly played out in LA. Um, so that's increased access to ethnic media, radio, and social media. And so I think that when we're trying to understand social movement outcomes, one of the things we need to do is analyze the media opportunity structure. And I think there's a lot of work to be done looking at different movements in different places and different times and really trying to develop this, this concept a little bit further. I think it will prove pretty useful in understanding how social movements engage with, with media. 
So in this context, um, what I found is that we have a developing process of what I'm calling transmedia mobilization, a process where a social movement narrative is spread systematically across multiple media platforms, creating a distributed and participatory social movement world with multiple entry points for organizing for the purpose of strengthening movement identity and outcomes. So of course, this is a mashup between social movement theory and ideas about transmedia storytelling um, and transmedia uh, narrative in general. Um, you know, of course, you know, Marcia Kinder theorizes this and develops the idea in terms of, uh, you know, branded media commodities that are spread across different platforms, both, uh, both physical and, and broadcast. Um, and Henry Jenkins famously develops the idea um, in the context of uh, cult cultural industries um, that provide, you know, different entry points for fans and users where different pieces of the narrative can be captured uh, depending on the particular entry point. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is think about, well, what does this mean in the social movement space or social movement context? And, um, you know, again, I really think that this is going to be a productive concept for understanding what's happening in the real life experiences of how social movements use media beyond the tendency, which I would argue is a little bit too widespread, to constantly look at the platform or look at what's new. Okay, you know, what are movements doing with Twitter? What are movements doing on Facebook? You know, the, uh, the X revolution where X just happens to be, you know, the latest technology. I really don't think that social movements actually work that way in the way that people engage with the narrative that the movement is producing. I think that they pretty much engage with all of the media forms that they have access to across the particular media opportunity structure that they occupy. And, um, you know, the evidence that I found in, in the <coughs> LA immigrant rights movement, that's where I drew this idea from, but I think it's, it's going to hold up um, across different, different movement spaces and media spaces. And I'll give some examples of some specific ideas uh, to deepen that. So one of the most important pieces here is that by, by producing media in the change structure where people have access, even if it's only marginal or part-time or only in the context of, uh, of school, not necessarily in the home, by being able to participate even small pieces of movement media, that builds people's identification with the social movement. So uh, in a way, I don't know if it's just sort of a duh point, but the idea is that by making media, you are deepening uh, your involvement with that particular movement when you're contributing to the narrative that the movement makes. Whereas in the past, there might have been a smaller set of people whose role was to produce the movement's narrative and produce media for the movement. Now, uh, with social media, people can participate more broadly. And I'm not going to read this, this whole quote out loud, but this is an example of one, one person I talked to who, who became a full-time professional uh, immigrant rights organizer, but her first engagement with the immigrant rights movement wasn't through sort of street protest or movement activity, it was through media production. So there was a documentary film called Made in LA, which is wonderful, I, I encourage you to check it out if you haven't seen it. Um, it, was a, um, it went to Sundance and it was you know, broadcast pretty widely on, on PBS and also on, on local media and screened widely uh, locally in LA. But this was a four-year production process that involved a lot of people, including this, uh, this woman who was involved in transcribing um, interview transcripts for the filmmaker. And so her first engagement with movement activity was transcribing these transcripts for this documentary about the garment sweatshops in LA and how people were trying to organize uh, you know, within that, that context. So she really talks about how her, um, you know, she really got engaged with and involved in the immigrant rights movement through this process of being, of participating in a larger uh, you know, uh, film production. Um, 
So it's not just social media, it's, it's across all the different spaces. Um, the other thing that I think is really key to look at is how um, broadcast and social media are being used by organizers together across different spaces and dis different platforms. So uh, how many of you heard about the Basta Dobbs campaign? You just kind of raise a, raise a hand. So I'll just, in that case, I'll play this brief clip, um, which gives you a sense of what this campaign was doing. This October, CNN will take an unprecedented look at the story of Latinos in America. We have so Hi. many stories to tell. We're a rich culture. We've got a lot to offer to this country. Illegal aliens. Overwhelmed by criminal illegal aliens. Illegal aliens are in the country, including many murderers and rapists. Blue Dobbs has done more to slander Latin people in this country than any other single human being. Mr. Dobbs represents a ongoing threat to CNN's credibility as a serious news organization. Dobbs is the most guilty of the reckless, irresponsible journalism. Nine-year-old Virginia Flores shot and killed one of the suspects is the national head of the Minutemen American Defense. I support the Minuteman Project and the fine Americans who make it up and all they've accomplished fully, relentlessly, and proudly. The invasion of illegal aliens is threatening the health of many Americans. Tuberculosis, uh, leprosy, malaria. Now we want to try and check that. We can't. Just but so I can you tell know. you this. If we reported it, it's a fact. <laughs> you can't tell me that. You did. No, I just did. You distort the figures. You exaggerate. A third of the prison population in this country is estimated to be illegal alien. About a third of our prison population who are illegal alien. Six percent of prisoners um, in this country are non-citizens, not even illegal. Uh, yes, but I, and I misspoke. If we reported it, it's a fact. This, of course, is a masterful uh, you know, example of remixing mass media coverage with user-created content, um, all in the service of uh, sort of building uh, participation in a campaign to, uh, to remove Dobbs uh, from CNN, which was ultimately successful. And when I talked to organizers around how it was that this campaign you know, really worked, what did it look like day to day, um, it was really interesting because 
Um, it wasn't just that this video was sort of created and then sort of circulated virally online, although that certainly was the case. Um, but in the context of the digital inequality, they had a very uh, conscious transmedia strategy, um, or actually at least cross-platform strategy in terms of building participation in this campaign, um, which involved mobile phones, web video, uh, earned coverage in print and broadcast media, um, and, and actual uh, protest activity. So one of the organizers I talked to um, said, okay, well, they began with the text messaging hub because their community uh, that they were trying to organize. Uh, sorry, let me back up a little bit. This, is, this campaign was done by Presente.org, which is a um, national organization which was created specifically to try and be a sort of Latino move on. And some of the um, uh, people who <coughs> in initially uh, sort of created this project actually uh, had experience working with Move On in the past. And they said, well, we need to figure out how to do this uh, in our community, given the different media forms that we do have access to. Um, so they began with uh, text messaging. So they, um, they worked with a DC-based organization that runs the back end, um, you know, the database, uh, it's a mobile comments actually, um, to basically um, act as an email Kind of like a, you know email activism, but focused around text messaging, um, which has become a lot more visible now, especially since the the Haiti earthquake. But um, anyway, so what they did was they bought a ticket on uh, JetBlue, which for six hundred dollars the organizers could fly as much as they wanted um, anywhere that JetBlue flies. And so they flew around the country, going on Spanish language radio in city after city, um, and using that as a, as a way to promote this campaign, and also on air on the radio get people to text in and sign up for their text message activist you know e, e alert system. Um, and so by doing that. They then built this initial list of about 10,000 text message activists. They then sent out a text message to get people to go and uh, actually protest physically in front of local offices of CNN all around the country, which, and then they did uh, English language press releases to, um, to print publications. So then they earned a bunch of uh, you know, coverage in a more traditional way um, in, in English language print publications, which of course still drives broadcast coverage. So TV, um, TV reporters see that there's a, you know, a story in the LA Times um, about this campaign, and then they go and they track down the people and they do a broadcast segment about it. So then whenever they got the broadcast coverage, they made sure to uh, insert this text message campaign information into the broadcast coverage. So then by the second week, they grew that initial list of 10,000 people um, to about 50,000 people. And then they just continued that cycle back and forth. So basically, they very systematically worked uh, back and forth between the web, text messaging, um, print and broadcast coverage, back and forth between Spanish language and English language, uh, you know, media sources, grew their list to, you know, 100,000 people. Then, it was only then when they had that level of uh, participants in the campaign that they started doing calls to CNN to start actually pressuring CNN. And so by the time CNN heard about it, um, they already had sort of a lot of pressure happening and they had uh, coverage <coughs> happening in broadcast media. Um, and ultimately, of course, then you know, they, they, let, they let Dobbs go. So I think this is a really excellent and interesting example of how uh, you know, savvy organizers work across media platforms to, to build particular campaigns. Another thing that I found was that a lot of organizers were shifting from just making media about the movement to content curation and circulation. So this is one, um, one volunteer with a local online news site that I talked to who said that 
basically what he would do throughout the week is gather all this information about immigrant rights actions and protests that were happening, and then he would put them together into a MySpace bulletin and send that out to all of his friends, which would then be circulated you know, more widely. So he's basically a content curator of social movement events and media. Um, I don't have time to talk about this example, although it's, it's really wonderful. This is, this is great because it's a translocal example. It's a local solidarity with uh, protests that were happening in Oaxaca. Um, if anyone wants to know more about it later, you know, talk to me. Um, you can also, you know, I, I've written about it, uh, and I can send you the link to that. But um, I don't really have time right now. But the, the upshot of this piece is basically looks at how previous media practices influence present media practices. And the example here is how Oaxacan immigrants who live in LA already had a social practice of creating videos about weddings and quinceañeras, um, sweet 15 celebrations, and other types of cultural events, and sending them through the mail on VHS back and forth to their local communities. So when Sensenbrenner came around, um, they were sort of started doing the same thing, except for instead of using VHS, now they're using YouTube and this uh, other video site called Uvu um, to basically communicate with their uh, communities of origin about the mobilizations that are happening in LA um, and sort of building transnational support, including getting coverage in Spanish language print publications that are published in Oaxaca but circulate in Los Angeles because a lot of the advertising in them comes from Oaxacan-owned businesses in LA. So there's really fascinating stuff to be done here around transnational and translocal media flows as well and how those practices then inform um, movement practices. But the other example that I, I wanted to uh, sorry, spend a little more time on is the walkouts. So I talked a little bit about how um, high school students got involved in this movement. Um, so um, about, depending on who you ask, between 20 and 40,000 uh, students, high school students from uh, and middle school students from Los Angeles Unified School District during the spring of 2006 walked out of schools in support of or against the Sensenbrenner Bill. And there was a bunch of coverage of that talking about how it was the MySpace walkouts and how you know, MySpace had been the, uh, the organizing principle there. And it's, it's not that that's not true, but I think it's much more complex. And this is a, another great example, I think, of what I'm trying to articulate in this concept of transmedia mobilization. So, High school walkouts weren't something that were created in 2006 by these students. It's something that's part of the cultural history and what social movement scholars call the repertoire of, conten of contention of the Chicano movement in Los Angeles. So in 1968, um, high school students in East Los Angeles organized walkouts where 20 to 30,000 students uh, protested um, uh, the conditions in the schools, the you know, high numbers of students in the schools, uh, the lack of culturally relevant curriculum, and just the way that they were generally treated as, as second-class citizens. Um, and Edward James Almos um, produced a uh, HBO uh, documentary called Walkout, which uh, was shot during uh, 2004 and 2005, and was then aired on HBO in March of uh, 2006. Uh, this is during the exact same time that the walkouts are taking place in Los Angeles. And um, it's, it actually wasn't just aired, uh, it was aired on March 18th uh, on HBO, but prior to that, the producers had actually taken the film to Los Angeles high schools uh, all around the city and done pre-release screenings for high school students. Um, and this is happening in December, uh, and Jan December of 2005 and January of 2006. So students who were already socially active uh, many of who were uh, members of 
student organizations that their parents had created uh, in the 60s um, are seeing this film just, just as uh, Sensenbrenner, as momentum around Sensenbrenner is building and the protests are being created. So they've seen this film. Um, and um, here's, here's a quick clip from the film. Can't really hear it, but. Uh, anyway, so they're, they're discussing tactics. They're talking about uh, Martin Luther King and Cesar Chavez. And um, another interesting fact about this is that uh, a number of the actors in this film were children of some of the original organizers from the 1968 uh, walkouts. And, um, and the films, of course, were also shot in these schools. So the student bodies at these schools participated, you know, uh, thousands of them actually in the making of this film during the previous year. So it was almost as if the uh, production of the HBO uh, special walkout was a dress rehearsal for the walkouts that then took place in the spring. And you can see, um, this is the moment when they all realize that they're arguing about, well, why should we walk out? What good is that going to do? And, um, and uh, the young woman is arguing, well, um, you know, look at what's happening in the South. Um, you know, they're boycotting, they're boycotting the buses. So, um, our school, she says, our schools are the back of the bus. And everybody kind of stops and looks around at each other and says, yeah, let's walk out. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, Hamily acted and so on, but you get the idea. Um, so then what we can see here is, you know, people then uh, posting on MySpace about this film in the context of the real world walkouts and mobilizations that are taking place. So this is a, you know, comment um, around, you know, I love your music, I love the Mars Volta. I saw the movie Walkout. It's really good. It got me all emotional. Actually, I saw it exactly one day before the RHS Walkout. It inspired me, I guess. I'll try to go to the screening in Reedley. It's really a good movie. Um, so you, ha you do have uh, MySpace is playing a role here. People are circulating the idea of these walkouts, but it's also tied into this, um, you know, this, this larger production. This is just a clip of um, uh, an AIM chat discussion that somebody had and then copied and pasted it onto their um, MySpace friend's wall about participating in the walkouts. And it's, it's also about, um, you know, it was fun. 500 students left the school. That's like half ML, MLAOO. Um, anyway, uh, you probably can't see it from back there. But they're actually talking about sort of the, exp the emotional and visceral experience of participating in the walkouts. And um, that's something that is being remedi remediated and recirculated across all these different spaces, from chat to MySpace, back and forth into broadcast media. Um, and uh, just one more from this. I don't want to, you know, beat it over, beat it over the head too much. But this is a YouTube user who reposts onto YouTube the clip from the movie Walkout that she's in, which she's recorded, I think, with her cell phone, um, and then posted up onto YouTube. So she recorded it when it aired on HBO, recorded it and posted it, and then post the link around to all of her <laughs> friends. And she says, this is Lincoln High School walks out, and I'm in it. So you can imagine this is taking place again in 2005, just before the actual walkouts uh, you know, happen. And then people sort of comment on that. Oh, I'm also in this scene as well. So this is just one more example where people are referencing um, uh, you know, the, the movie A Day Without a Mexican um, in trying to get people to turn out for the protest. So May 1st will be the day without Latinos, all caps. Um, the movie A Day Without a Mexican will become real. Let's make this happen. Let's, sh let's show this uh, country what our contribution means. Um, 
And then the last point from transmedia mobilization, I just thought this was an interesting quote from one of my interviewees about how people's ideas about what it means to be a movement media maker are really, is really shifting from just producing content to aggregation and curation. So again, this is the idea that rather than just shoot a video about the march, what they did was they just made flyers telling people, when you shoot your own video, please tag it in this way, post it in this way, send us a link, and we'll include it in the media that we're making about, you know, about the protests. So again, uh, transmedia mobilization practices include um, increased identification with the movement, which is based on uh, participating in media production. Um, it includes pr uh, production across platform. It includes transmedia strategies, um, as we saw in the Basta Dobbs case. It includes media bridging work, where people take media texts from one place and then repost them across other channels, and a shift from just production to aggregation, curation, remix, and circulation. And I think that transmedia mobilization practices are also having a big impact on social movement outcomes. Um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. Um, I really debated when I was coming here whether to focus my talk around um, the hands-on workshops that I, that I do, um, which include audio production and mobile production, or whether to focus more on the broader theoretical framework. And I chose the latter, um, which means that I'm not really going to have that much time to talk about um, some of what I'm calling a praxis of digital media literacy that grassroots CBOs in LA are developing uh, in order to bring their base online, get them trained in how to use these tools, but also in the process of learning how to remix media, helping, helping them uh, become critical thinkers about what the mass media does um, you know, to their communities. Um, because they do experience the kind of you know, hate speech that circulated in mass Anglo media as a kind of violence, uh, you know, symbolic violence which leads to physical violence as we've seen. So I'm really going to have to kind of skip ahead uh, some of this stuff, but just very briefly, um, I mentioned the, about 100 workshops, many of them uh, taking place in the Garment Workers Center with a project called Radio Tijeras, or Radio Scissors, which, um, where we basically um, learned how to do audio production and produce interviews and PSAs and music and also how to build radio transmitters and um, how to burn and mix uh, music and CDs. And this project actually resulted in two CDs worth of uh, material that was produced by garment workers themselves. They then circulated these CDs in the garment sweatshops around Los Angeles. And the reason why they wanted to do CDs was because a lot of the, uh, the sweatshop owners forbid the workers to talk to each other while they're working. This is a way of cutting down on the possibility that they'll organize. So a lot of people listen to music, and they listen to music uh, at the time, this was 2006 and 7. a lot of CD players, although it's shifting now more to MP3 players. But so they said, well, if we make CDs, people can listen to the stuff we're producing while they're working. And so they produced like Know Your Rights PSAs, uh, information about minimum wage, information about how to get in touch with the Garment Worker Center, in addition to music and just sort of interviews, which people were then listening to uh, you know, in, these, in these workplaces. And then the other project um, is Mobile Voices, or VosMob, which is a cell phone-based community journalism project, which was developed with the Institute for Popular Education of Southern California, which is a grassroots CBO, community-based organization, that organizes day laborers and household workers all throughout the city of Los Angeles. And this project, um, let's see, I wonder if I have time to show a short clip. Um, we started a little bit late. I have only 20 minutes, so I'm going to run out of time for discussion. So I won't show it. You'll have to go online and look at it. But uh, to make a long story short, um, we used uh, participatory design uh, to build uh, 
build on top of Drupal, which is a popular free open source content management system. We're building plugins and modules which enable people to use the cheap prepaid phones that they actually have access to to do digital storytelling uh, by posting either via voice calls, SMS, or MMS, um, which multimedia slideshows, which could include multiple images or audio clips or short video clips if their phone is video capable, um, which then arrive on a site um, get recirculated across social media and can be sent back out onto phones. And um, this project has been going on for a couple years and um, we actually won the uh, MacArthur Haystack uh, Digital Media and Learning Competition. And we also just recently, this project was uh, nominated for and won a um, World Summit Award for Mobile Inclusion um, by a, a World Summit Award is an outgrowth of the World Summit on the Information Society, which is a United Nations process that took place from 2001 to 2005. Um, and it's also supported by the UN uh, GAID, the Global Alliance for uh, Information Technology and Development. So this, um, this project has basically um, started to travel you know, pretty widely in the text that these day laborers and household workers are creating about their lives and about their communities using their phones um, are both sort of getting wide circulation and wide purchase and generating a bunch of broadcast media coverage for them about their communities and their situation, um, and also circulating peer-to-peer -peer, um, you know, via the mobile phones. So I'd love to uh, go into that more, but I'd, I, I want to have time to have a conversation. I will be presenting on this project in um, March, March 1st at the Berkman Center. I'm going to do a, a talk about this. So I'll, I can send the link to the department, and maybe you can send it around to people. Um, uh, another sort of amazing example of the praxis of digital media literacy is the DREAM Act students. Um, again, another case that I won't really go into, but um, what's interesting about them is that they, these are, these are undocumented students who grew up here in the U.S. Many of them were brought here as young kids, and they were trying to get a piece of legislation through, which was unfortunately just, just actually defeated recently, um, which would have provided them a path to legalization. Um, they... What's interesting about them is not only are they working across all the different media platforms, but they're also appropriating vernaculars from other social movements um, in the way that they're using these tools. So for example, they launched this whole campaign a few months ago, which was a coming out campaign, where they took the genre of the YouTube coming out video, um, which really has gained popularity in the last, I think, two years, um, and they used it to come out as undocumented students to their friends and family. And it's, it's even in the, the way that the videos are shot and the way that they talk about it, they're very consciously sort of using this, this, uh, this imagery and this language, um, uh, partly because uh, there, are, there actually is a pretty high concentration of queer activists who are part of the DREAM Act. But in addition to that, they are trying to use a form that's already become established on YouTube, in YouTube culture, um, so that it'll get broader circulation for their particular um, you know, movement issue. <coughs> Um, I also found that there are specific sort of uh, sites and modes of learning that take place in, in terms of what, what's happening with, uh, with media in the immigrant rights movement. Uh, learning happens formally, informally, and peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, it happens in, in physics, physical sites, like in computer labs, in schools, in universities and libraries, and to some degree in homes. Um, and there are certain barriers, uh, including the lack of resources, the digital uh, digital access problems, which I talked about before, um, and of course moral panic with the same kinds of, kinds of things we see in you know, uh, D Dana Boyd's work and in the Digital Youth Project. Um, all of these things are, of course, uh, 
you know, part of the daily life of especially younger people who are learning these tools in this context, but it has specific sort of twists in the context of doing social movement work. And finally, um, I'll just end by talking a little bit about the, uh, the impacts that social movement structure has on effective transmedia mobilization and vice versa. So um, again, we started late, so I don't have too much time. But um, just quickly, in MacArthur Park in 2007, the Los Angeles Police Department um, attacked a peaceful crowd of uh, 10,000 people and brutally beat a lot of people. And um, there was an internal investigation that the LAP themselves did, which um, ended up saying that they had inappropriately used force, and they actually settled an $11 million lawsuit which people who had, with people who had been unlawfully beaten and attacked uh, you know, during, that, during that protest, which is the largest payout they've ever done, uh, which basically found the LAPD to be at fault. But in the immediate wake of this attack, what happened was that some of the professional nonprofit organizations in LA who were part of the immigrant rights movement scene immediately issued a bunch of press releases and press conferences um, trying to distance themselves from what had happened by sort of saying, you know, it's unfortunate that some violent protesters provoked the you know, response of the police, trying to sort of uh, use that, that narrative, which we hear a lot when there are cases of police violence. So even though the LAPD's own investigation found that the violence was unneeded, um, these movement supposedly organizations were using this language. Um, and I think in the past that might have gone more unchallenged. But what happened here is that um, everyday participants and grassroots media makers um, through social media spaces created a counter-narrative very, very quickly and started assembling all of these images and clips of what had happened and doing this little, like, you know, let's download what Fox News broadcasts and then highlight it. Um, you know, here's the moment where this happened, here's the moment where that happened, and created this whole counter-narrative that actually turned out to be true according to the LAPD's internal investigation. So this is just an example of how in the changed media opportunity structure, um, um, the traditional movement organizations which operate in a top-down manner, um, you know, sending top-down tweets, if they engage in social media use at all, it's just they think of it as another broadcast medium, you know, these kinds of things are what my interviewee said. That, that's challenged now by the new uh, social media space. Um, another challenge people talked about is how um, big immigrant rights organizations don't know what to do with the social media space and with networked activism because, you know, how that can't get funding, you know, how we can't take credit for it if it was produced by a thousand people. So, you know, how can I go back to my funder and say, look at this great thing we did if they just want to know, you know, how much media coverage did I get in the LA Times and in broadcast media. So another piece of the whole puzzle is that funder strategies and um, big institutional actors in movement spaces need to learn about the new uh, space. Um, there are horizontal logics and vertical logics that compete, um, and I talked about those already. Uh, some of them. There's, there's more of them uh, in the written version of this. And so finally, um, what are the conclusions? Here was my research question. And what I found is that social movement formations are going to be more effective if they take advantage of, of the transformed media opportunity structure, develop practices of transmedia mobilization. If their base isn't already online, they need to engage in a practice of digital media literacy. And they need to shift their communicative role from a previous uh, era when their role was to be top-down content producers and controllers of the frame uh, 
and they need to start being more engaged in aggregation, curation, remixing, and recirculation um, of movement media that's increasingly produced by a digitally media literate base. There's a lot of room for work to still be done here. I'd love to actually develop uh, some quantitative measures of the media opportunity structure. That would be interesting. Uh, comparative analysis, of course. Uh, I'd love to uh, come here and work with, uh, work with all of you. Um, I know that uh, you're working on some of this space as well. Um, and it would be interesting to see um, how does this look both in different uh, locations, uh, different movements, different times. And I didn't talk at all about the dangers here. Of course, surveillance, uh, you know, Tunisia, we have the example of the Tunisian state, um, you know, doing JavaScript injections to gather people's uh, Facebook and, uh, you know, Twitter uh, accounts so that they can track down who all the activists are, and that's sort of pretty widespread. There's lots of great work that's being done in that space, and I work on that a little bit as well myself. Um, and um, I just don't have time to talk about it today. Um, I have a whole sort of more formal analytical model uh, based on social movement theory, um, which I, I am trying to transform. Um, but um, again, I'd rather talk about questions than my formal analytical model right now. Um, and you probably would too. And I already talked about the implications for social movements. So uh, that's the end of my talk, and let's, let's discuss. Questions? Yeah. So, Sasha, one thing I, I um, you know, particularly, okay, one thing that particularly caught my ear, so is your mention of how, uh, you know, the focus on social movements themselves rather than on platforms uh, was particularly interesting. I'm somebody who finds it very interesting to focus on platforms and look at that in the context of computational creativity. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a thing that I noticed, you know, is that you uh, then went on to talk about the, the idea of the, you know, YouTube coming out video as a genre which the social movement was playing on, it seems to me like, um, I mean, I certainly don't object to the idea of focusing on social movements. You've shown us some very rich results from that. But it seems like there's a lot of value in looking at particular platforms also and focusing on that. I mean, they're both, the social movement is a activity, a locus for activity that is of social and political and cultural significance. But if you look at something like MySpace or YouTube, that's also a locus for conversation, discourse, activity among people that has those types of significance as well. And so I'm, one of the things that, uh, you know, that I was wondering about is beyond uh, the, the life of these particular movements and their goals, um, those people on MySpace posting about the films that they're in, I mean, that's, that has a bunch of functions other than ones related to the social movement. And they're also talking about music, sexuality, other forms of popular media, other, you know, other issues of concern, like life issues of concern to them, and so on. How does, a, how does the social media, um, how does the discourse uh, related to the social movement particular, uh, particularly um, fit into the other things that are going on, for instance, on MySpace? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I didn't mean to uh, suggest that it's not interesting to study platforms. I guess my... Um, what I'm trying to say really is that when people are trying to understand how social movements work, online, um, I think that they're making a mistake if they, if, they, if they try and attribute to a particular platform. You know, the Twitter revolution, the Facebook revolution, the X, the Y, the Z. I, I, don't, I really don't think, based on what I've seen here, and I think we'll probably see if we look elsewhere, that, uh, that real life social movements actually work that way. I think that narratives, symbols, imagery, uh, media texts are generated 
by movements and then are circulated across all of the different uh, platforms that participants in the movement have access to. So that's all I was trying to say with that. It's not that studying platforms isn't interesting, it's that if we want to understand how movements work, um, we will sort of, um, you know, we'll miss a lot if we only look at uh, what happens in, in a particular platform. So, so I got that, but I still want to know more about what the understanding of social movement dynamics and the way they interact with social media can tell us about like the the broader life of MySpace, for instance, mm. or YouTube. You know, how is it? Because we already saw one connection that a YouTube form that's established is being developed further by a social movement being take, taken off. And I'm wondering what other sorts of developments and Absolutely. connections are happening yeah. that relate more broadly. Yeah, I think that that happens all the time and that sort of um, social practices and uh, genres are taken from uh, contexts that have absolutely nothing to do with social movement activity, and then they become uh, both both uh, sites and spaces for, uh, sorry, bo both sites and, and practices uh, that people then uh, repurpose for social movement activity. And we'll, we see that time and time again when we look at sort of, you know, different, different movement moments in different places and different contexts. In fact, you know, this goes, I guess, a little bit to, uh, well, it's a little bit of a separate question, but it kind of goes to Ethan Zuckerman's uh, cute cat's theory of social activism, which is that, you know, the whole question of, well, if you just focus on developing a social movement platform, which is all social movement all the time, um, that doesn't make sense for a number of different reasons, including that, you know, the, the state or the target, you know, can just shut it down at any particular moment. Whereas if, if people are using the skills and platforms that they use to circulate images of cute cats, uh, and then a movement happens, and then they start using that same space to circulate protest you know, footage and images, um, it becomes much more difficult to crack down and shut down because it's become incorporated into people's sort of daily lives and daily practices. I think there's a lot of sort of truth in that idea. Although I still am skeptical of letting um, privately owned uh, social media spaces be the only locus of social movement activity because of all of those dangers, because of censorship, because of surveillance, um, because of um, you know, all those issues that are raised. So I still am a big fan of creating dedicated platform spaces also because I think that, and, that, and that's why I work with that on the VASMOB project, because I think that you can also build features and functionality that you never would need to build for necessarily a, a broader uh, you know, audience if you really do participatory design with the particular social movement context. But I think there's a lot of uh, interesting things to be said about the way that, that genres flow back and forth uh, between movement activity and daily, um, daily life. Yeah. Um, we just go around in a circle, I guess. Or... Thank you. Um, you talked about uh, social movements. What, what about policy advocacy? Does it follow the same kind of uh, path or multiple path and multiple locus of mobilization? If you mm. could say something about that. In relation, um, the media opportunity structure, um, are there other ways of changing that? <clears throat> In addition to your to activists holding workshops and working together, raising consciousness, does government, does the media policy have a role to play in changing the structure? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of you know policy advocacy, well, I, one thing I forgot to mention is that the immigrant rights movement of 2006 defeated the Sensenbrenner Bill. So um, there are certainly uh, you know my focus has been more on looking at movements that have a large sort of uh, grassroots base, but certainly they are also interfacing with a number of people in D.C. 
who are lobbying you know, for particular policies, in this case around you know, immigration. Um, but that you know, I think that the most savvy uh, activists have always sort of understood that uh, you need both an inside and an outside game to really move uh, policy forward. Um, and I think we find that sort of you know, time and time again in different social movement spaces. So that what happens, what the grassroots is doing, um, in the best case, informs what the policy insiders uh, do. Hopefully the policy advocates listen to what the grassroots actually wants before they just start generating some policies that they think would be good for people. Um, that doesn't always happen. Um, and we were talking a little bit earlier today about the professionalization of the social movement space and how that can sometimes generate new layers of uh, both policy advocates but also media uh, producers who um, try and frame things in ways that maybe their uh, you know, base isn't interested in. And so that, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, problem or dynamic. Um, in terms of how the media opportunity structure can be, uh, uh, can be thought about and, and, and changed, you know, one of the things that I didn't really talk about was um, I actually think that social movements have had a huge impact already on the media opportunity structure itself. So for example, um, when the uh, Indie Media Network was uh, created in 1999 during the WTO uh, meetings in Seattle, and they took some free software that some Australian hackers had made and they uh, created an open publishing platform um, and did grassroots street level coverage of the trade summit, um, they really scooped the mass media, uh, you know, blow by blow. Uh, you know, the mass media reporters w weren't getting the story from the streets that this, the citizen journalists, although the term hadn't really been used yet, um, were getting. And so it was very quickly in the wake of that uh, you know, CNN created CNN iReports and, you know, basically every other, uh, you know, mass media outlet started thinking about, well, how are we going to incorporate or engage or somehow, uh, you know, bring in participatory journalism uh, and bring the eyeballs to our sites rather than just let, you know, some, uh, some hackers and anarchists and kids on the street, you know, do a, do a better job at this stuff than we are doing. And so, in a way, I think, you know, it's not to attribute everything that happened with uh, social media to a particular network of activists, but there are certainly many times and places where, um, you know, organized activists really push the limits of what can be done with a particular media platform or technology, and that then gets reincorporated into what the larger cultural industries do. So in fact, activists have a role in transforming the media opportunity structure, both in terms of the practices that they engage in and the tools that they develop, but also in terms of policy. And, um, you know, certainly that's something that I've spent a lot of time getting engaged in. Um, I spent a couple of years doing, uh, you know, media policy work uh, myself. And um, unfortunately, I think there is often a disconnect between the, some of the grassroots media activists and the media policy advocates. Um, but in the best case, they, they work well together. One really good recent example is the low power FM <coughs> policy. So Prometheus Radio Project um, and a whole nationwide network of, uh, you know, community radio producers, uh, um, they, they created pirate radio stations um, starting from the 60s but all the way up through the 80s. And then at the same time, some of them said, well, you know, this is great that we're pirates, but it would be great if we also didn't have our transmitters constantly seized by the FCC. How could we get a low power FM policy? And they went to DC and they lobbied for about a decade and 
They have now won over the last few years a series of successive policy victories uh, to, to obtain and expand low-power FM licenses all around the country. And just recently, they won another victory. So, and this was done by people who were themselves you know, pirate radio producers. So sometimes, uh, grassroots media activists uh, decide to go, to go for the policy game. And when they do, I think uh, sometimes they have uh, powerful impacts on the media opportunity structure itself. Thanks. It's really interesting. Uh, I guess my question is maybe the opposite of Nick's, uh, which is I'm sort of interested in how we think about this transmedia in a different way. So if one idea of transmedia is storytelling, right, transmedia is storytelling, you made a nod, you know, that, no, this is about creating a world, right, and that's one of the things Henry talks about as well. But as I was listening to your presentation, it, it seems to me like it's creating something different. It's not actually, actually a world, or, or maybe it is. I mean, I guess that's why I'll leave it open to you, but it, it seems to me that this question of mobilization is maybe what things are coalescing around. Um, and I, I guess what I'm curious is, is how we think about that transmedia coalescence. Like, what is the center of gravity? What should we think about as that center of gravity um, you know, I think about it in terms of uh, other media mix scenarios, but I'm wondering, especially in a case where you have so many people creating video, and no doubt each person has certainly their own perspective, but also probably political leanings that maybe don't align with mm. the overall movement. I guess I would think of it in terms of movement. You know, it's, it's a kind of, it's trying to do something, right? Some kind of action. So I guess that's what I'm curious to hear is how you, you think about both that, that divergence and that pulling together in terms of the, if, if there are a thousand, 10,000 people making videos, well, what are, what is the thing? I mean, what do we even call it? Is it a theme? Is it, is it a movement? Is it a network? Is it an action? How are you thinking about that transmedia mm. object, or well, I don't, I don't see, I don't even know what to call it, right? It, it doesn't seem quite a narrative, doesn't seem quite a story. I'm not sure world either, but maybe it is creating a world. Anyway, I'm curious how you're thinking about that. Yeah, no, it's a great question, and I think I don't, I don't think I necessarily have answered that question. I think I'm just trying to raise the question in this, you know, in this particular work. And you know, it may be the case that transmedia mobilization um, is just a a term that I'm floating in that will explore and that doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily the best uh, way to capture what, I, what I'm describing. I think um, people who are engaged in a, sort of the day-to-day -day life of a social movement, like what's happening in 2006 in LA, um, I think they definitely do think about it and talk about it in terms of being um, a world. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, the most intense, you know, fan that you can imagine with the additional layer that they feel like they're actually fighting for something that's going to have like a real impact, you know, in 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 real life, IRL. So um, it's kind of um, again, I'm I'm being hesitant here because I'm not sure that it's the best term or the best way to think about it. But I think it is a productive uh, theoretical space to imagine. Well, does this really fit? Does this really does this really work? Um, I think that people. Uh, People talk about, um, they do talk about creating narratives and that the narrative is what is going to engage people in the movement. Um, and that's something that's gained, I think, increasing traction more recently. Um, you know, there, there has been a lot of interest in 
uh, at least among these networks that I'm looking at, in saying, well, we need to move away from this very dry space of, you know, we can convince people of our political position by citing, you know, facts and figures and, you know, telling that, you know, just kind of laying out a rational logical argument. Instead, people are saying, we need to make it exciting and sexy and beautiful and engaging for people to get involved in, in, in our movement. And I'm seeing that in a lot of different places. And I think that that happens through, um, you know, it happens through music, certainly. There's whole, you know, networks of musicians who just operate through, not just, who, who spend a lot of time playing at movement events and actually build their whole fan base, uh, you know, through doing that. And, and sometimes even blow up by doing that and sometimes they don't. Um, you have um, the same thing with films and film texts and um, even science fiction. There's a whole sort of tradition of, of some sort of social movement actors thinking about um, how could we use science fiction to radically reimagine these uh, structures of power which we find oppressive on a day-to-day -day basis, um, but what could that look like in an alternate you know, universe or a different life, but then to create you know, these sci-fi texts which could then also be circulated through movement networks. So I do think that people are creating uh, worlds and places that they can inhabit. And what's changing now is that as the digital skills spread and people can create little pieces of it themselves, it's moving from being just a place where, you know, maybe in the past there would have been some very powerful movement voices, you know, respected poets, um, you know, the newsletter of, of the movement organization that's, you know, most visible or most known, um, the pamphleteer, um, that that still exists and there still are people who are recognized as being skilled producers of text within a movement context, but increasingly um, the idea is that people can take those and remix them and participate in c creating the movement narrative together. I'm not sure if that uh, answers your question, but... Um, I think it's interesting that you're talking about it from kind of a fan point of view and using this word, word world. I'm not sure if you're aware of... Um, you know, Henry Jenkins is now at USC, Annenberg, and um, when he first went over there, he was still doing some research here, and I was working on a project with him, which has since become a research project that he's doing there, I, I believe. Um, really trying to look at um, these groups of fans that are already in their fan world, and then something moves them from becoming... Do you know about this work? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So for everybody's benefit, something kind of moves them from being very focused on this this world, which is based in popular culture, whether it's Harry Potter is kind of the main example, one of our case studies, but a lot of other case studies um, in that research. Um, so what am I trying to say? Basically, there's already a world, there's already a culture, there's already a social network, whether it's online or offline or a combination of both, that then when an issue um, somehow connects with that world's narrative, Everything is, the network is already laid out for them to use in order to kind of create some kind of mobilization. Is that, has that basically been the case in the work that you're looking at? For instance, the radio kind of, the use of radio, sorry, <laughs> um, already being in place for those people to, you know, pass those messages around. Is that generally has been the case? That well, their world is their, their immigrant population or? Well, I haven't been looking so much at, at um you know, that, that side of it, partly because the community that I'm looking at has so much less access, and so they aren't necessarily as active participants in a lot of the um, online, you know, fan spaces. Yeah. Um, but I am aware of that work, and I think it's really fascinating. It's almost like a, 
like that that work is like this and my work is like I this know, and there's a bunch of places where they, where they I've been intersect. trying to see where they connect while you've been talking yeah yeah so looking at the the Harry Potter fan club getting engaged in in real world stuff or the world of Warcraft you know case where people are right. translating you know blocked documents and you right. know inserting it in game like all that stuff yeah. I think is really interesting and fascinating um, it's not the kind of work that I'm doing so I'm not focusing by starting from found spaces I think the closest thing in this work would be would have to be what happened with the the radio locutores, the right. radio announcers. So they have a fan base, which is you know uh, millions of people strong who listen to them every morning. And so when they then um, you know get engaged in movement activity, they're able to really bring in and mobilize you know all of their fans. Um, although it's it's a little different because it's a broadcast media. Although the way, there's some interesting things to be said about the way that they use you know, Spanish language talk radio is it is talk radio. So there's it's constantly calls. In, so there is a participatory aspect to it. Um, it's not just them talking and broadcasting. But that would be probably the, 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 clo the closest thing there. I just, I just want to mention this. Actually, I, I thought you, the Koreatown example is in some ways closer because you have, what, what the connection is there is you have an existing community of people who are already in contact, whereas I'm not sure the people who are enthusiasts of the radio show know each other as well as a fan community. But mm -hmm. um, that was just a... Um, not a digression, but uh, <laughs> a remark that you don't have to answer. Okay, last one. <laughs> yeah, the issue is one of um, persistence. So, so you know, 2006, you've got this 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 galvanizing moment that allows, for example, the hosts of these shows to talk to one another on the radio, that stimulates a lot of creative redeployment or appropriation of existing channels. Um, mm. Battle is one. What happens afterwards? You pointed to a couple of examples where, where there's obviously creative uh, continued use, but are you seeing that certain channels maintain a level of kind of community organizing and activism, where other channels sort of the, the DJs go back to their to their sort of normal world? Where, are, what kind of patterns are you seeing there in terms of persistence of yeah. uh, of an activist uh, discourse? Yeah. Well. Um no, I mean, what happens afterwards is the DJs go back to telling sexist jokes every morning on the radio and, um, you know, building their listenership that way. Um, they, the Spanish language, you know, commercial broadcast networks move quickly away from, you know, trying to, you know, keep galvanizing people for activism. The DC policy-based people, um, this is a whole other sort of, you know, side, but um, get word from the funders that what they need to do now is rein in the street protests because the new administration that's coming in is really going to treat them right. And so now it's time to get out the vote, um, you know, to get Obama in so that they can have immigration reform. And the, so the DC-based people do that. And in fact, um, some of them who tried to continue, there's a whole amazing story that one or local organizer told me about how a lot of the groups that were involved in this movement activity tried to organize a big mobilization of the Latino community on Inauguration Day when Obama came in, not as a protest against the incoming administration, but as a protest in support, and they were specifically told by some of the big national funders that they better not do that because it, wasn't go it was going to take away from the, um, the campaign's message of a post-racial America. And um, they, so the DC people called off the protest and uh, now it's 2011 and there's no immigration reform. <laughs> so, um, so there's, you know, oh, sorry about that. Um, so I think it's very complicated and, you know, as powerful as uh, it may be for people to learn how to use these new tools and appropriate them and use them to generate movement activity, there are much, the media opportunity structure is not everything and there are much larger, 
you know, broader political forces that are, that are still in play. In terms of the media practices and use, I think a lot of people learned things that they still continue to do. And so when SB 1070 came around in Arizona, some of those same networks were, of course, activated again. Um, and now you have much, a much richer, I think, uh, media uh, experience in the immigrant rights movement following that whole wave of 2006, uh, 2007. Um, I think a lot of people learned how to produce their own videos uh, of actions, you know, during that uh, during that time. I think that um, certainly Presente.org, um, you know, with the Basta Dobbs campaign, has built a lot of capacity to do transmedia organizing. Um, so I think that people's uh, skills are deeper. I think that the media space has become, uh, you know, richer for this movement in particular, as well as you know, for people more broadly. Um, but media doesn't determine everything, and so. Um, uh, it, it's an ongoing, you know, process, and we'll see, we'll see where it goes over the next couple of years. Great. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.